I sometimes joke that one of the core values here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church is what I like to call party Presbyterianism. We, we like to have our food and our drink. We like our times of fellowship, uh, whether that's in our homes or in our small groups, and particularly in our big church-wide feasts. I grew up in a family that also loved to have fellowship like that. There are very few evenings on the weekend that I can remember as a kid that we didn't have somebody in our home, that we had a lot of people with lots of different activity and actions going on, uh, food coming out of the kitchen, people playing cards, people sitting around firings, just enjoying that fellowship with one another. My parents, I think, had a great gift of hospitality, and my dad, as many of you know, was a pastor, and as a pastor, they cultivated that gift of hospitality in the churches that they served, and so like Redeemer, they would sometimes have big church dinners, and you know, we grew up calling them potlucks, um, but my dad decided to t name it something different. He said, let's call it an agape feast. And if you ask my dad why, he would tell the congregation this, we don't do pot anymore, <laughs> and we don't believe in luck. And of course, our narrator here in Ruth would agree, we don't believe in luck. This passage is filled with coincidences that the narrator wants us to laugh at. He wants us to see how God is mysteriously and wondrously at work in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. And friends, if he's wondrously and mysteriously at work in the lives of Naomi and Ruth, he is wondrously and mysteriously at work in your life too. Here in Ruth chapter 2, we see some small steps of progress. You know, we began this story with two sermons on grief and sadness of what seemed to be God's absence from Naomi's life. But now we can finally see almost as if that ancient locomotive, it begins to pick up speed. The wheels are beginning to turn and, and something is beginning to happen for Naomi. And it's particularly the introduction of the third main character of this story in verse 1, Boaz. Boaz, we read in verse 1 of chapter 2, is a relative of Naomi's husband. He's probably either a brother or a cousin of some sort. We don't actually know. What verse 1 tells us, however, is that he was a worthy man. If you have a, another version of the Bible in front of you, you might have other words that describe him, a valiant man, a mighty man. Remember what Naomi's two boys were named, sickly and dying? Here we have a worthy man, a valiant man, a man of strength. We also know that he's rich. He owns fields. He has male and female servants. Later in this story, we'll see that he can command a crowd. He is worthy of the respect of the town of Bethlehem. And to cap it all off, ladies, he is single. What a coincidence, right? Just so happened to be that. What a coincidence that Naomi and Ruth, 
just happened to come back to Bethlehem at the, at the beginning of the barley harvest. What a coincidence that Boaz, a close male relative, just so happens to show up at the field that Ruth is working in. What's going to happen next? Well, Ruth, in chapter 2, looks at her bitter mother-in-law, who is probably sitting in grief, and she realizes that they're going to starve unless somebody does something to provide for them. And so Ruth takes matters into her own hands, and she tells Naomi, I'm going to go find work. I'm going to pray that I find a landowner who will be gracious to me to allow me to come behind his field workers to gather up scraps of grain so that at least we would have something to eat. And in verse 3, we have one of these great coincidences that we have to laugh at. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. One of our newest members, Manasus Vilaka, is a professor, a seminary professor down in Brazil. He does it from here, but he teaches in Brazil, and he is a Hebrew scholar. And I called him out this morning in the first service because if you know the Hebrew, which Manasus does far better than I will ever know the Hebrew, there's a fascinating turn of phrase here in verse 3. Ruth's chance chanced upon her. Her chance chanced upon her. It just so happened. Wouldn't you know it? By luck, she ended up in the field of Boaz. Now, why is our narrator using that kind of language? Is he trying to tell us that this is all blind luck? No. By stating things in such an obvious way, he's actually hinting, he's laughing with this. His, his tongue is planted firmly in his cheek. He knows, and he wants you and I to know as well, that everything that's happening in Ruth is by design. God is working to fulfill his plan. I just want to stop here and ask you this. Do you believe that God is at work in your own life? So I think a lot of us, when asked that question, would Say, yes, Eric, pastor. yes, pastor, yes, yes, I do believe that God is at work in my life, yes. Can we go on and ask something else? But how many of us actually act like it? How many of us actually really do believe it? I think many of us, despite our orthodox professions of faith, we actually act as if God is totally absent from our lives. Or if God is perhaps disinterested in our lives. Oh, he might like and be interested in the lives of other people, more holy people, more obedient people, but not my life. Friends, when we act that way, we end up finding ourselves in exactly the same place that the characters of Ruth find themselves. Remember chapter 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. What kind of days were those? It's when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you don't actually believe that God is at work in and through you, you will take ownership of your own life and live it in opposition or live it in ignorance of what God is doing. 
At some point this week, maybe later this afternoon, maybe later this week, some quiet morning, some quiet evening, I would love for you to do this. Take a sheet of paper and sit down in a quiet space and begin rehearsing your life. Where have you seen God at work in your life? What kind of divine appointments has God kept in your life? Bringing people to you that you otherwise would not have known bringing opportunities across your way that you otherwise would never have experienced. And maybe at the time you just thought, well, this is a wonderful coincidence. What great luck that I've had this opportunity. But I hope now with the benefit of hindsight that you can actually see that this is God at work in your life, moving and directing your life to bring about his will. God is directing your steps. And so even if you don't happen to see it this morning, I want you to trust that he is, and then I want you to step out in faith that he is doing the things that he has called you to do. That's what Ruth is doing. This is what Ruth is doing. She is trusting a God that she barely knows. Remember, it was last week when Pastor John walked us through the end of chapter 1 and Ruth's profession of faith. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She doesn't know this God. And Naomi hasn't been a great witness of this God to her. But she is willing to follow her. And now she is willing to trust that that God will lead her to the right place. To a field where she might find favor from a landowner so that she can bring enough food home to Naomi so that they won't starve. Why does she need to find favor? Well, gleaning is hard work. Uh, I doubt that nearly any of us have ever gleaned in our lives before. In the Old Testament times, grain was harvested by hand, and the workers would move down the field and one guy would grab a, a bunch of grain, and with a knife in his other hand, he would slice it. And then he would set that down and keep working. And then there'd be another team behind those people with the knives, and they would gather up the grain. Usually these are women. They would gather up the grain and kind of put it together and stand it up so that it would dry out. Now, because all of this is being done by hand, you know that not every single piece of grain is either being cut or being stood up in the stalks. So poor people were allowed, according to the Mosaic law, to follow after the harvesters and pick up whatever was left over. Now, you can imagine that some landowners would insist that every possible scrap Every possible bit of capital and profit would be collected, and nearly nothing would be left for the poor. But a generous landowner might forsake some of his profit in order to provide for the poor in his community. Do you ever wonder what this might look like in our own economy today? A few years ago, Marvin Olasky, who is the former editor of World Magazine, was one of our early ruling elders here at Redeemer. He wrote an article titled, Door-to-Door -door Gleaning. 
door-to-door gleaning. And it was a story of a young man who was going door-to-door selling magazines. This has happened to you, this has happened to me, someone rings on the door, you open it up, they've got a badge, they've got magazines, they've got a big smile, and I always say thank you very much and I close the door. Well, Marvin was suspicious. And Marvin is a journalist. So what do journalists do when they get suspicious? They start asking questions. And Marvin found out that this young man had been selling drugs on the streets of Louisville, Kentucky, had witnessed the drive-by deaths of two of his high school friends, but had been recruited by this group to come from Kentucky to Texas to learn how to sell things door to door. And now he was up for a sales meeting at 7.30 every morning. Now he was knocking on 40 to 50 doors before he would ever get a sale. He had a dress code. He had a curfew. No alcohol. No drugs were allowed. Marvin talked to this young man's supervisor, and she said that fully two-thirds to three-fourths of the recruits that came and began working with her would drop out because it was just too hard. But for those who stayed, it ended up becoming a way to propel them into a life of work. This young man hoped that he would get good at sales so that he could start his own business. Marvin subscribed to two overpriced magazines that day. (laughs) Why? This is what he says. Maybe it shouldn't be our ideal to always buy at the lowest price. Maybe we need to find ways to support programs that have better track records than the government at successfully lifting people out of poverty. After he bought the magazines, Marvin had one more question for the young salesman. He wanted to know what motivated him. And the young man replied, telling Marvin about an aunt who taught him about Jesus when his mom was in jail for six years. The young man said, my aunt said I shouldn't waste my life. She said, God has a purpose for me. In verse 5, Boaz sees Ruth, and he asks his foreman, whose young woman is this? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Not who is this, but whose is this? She's without a country. She's in Israel, but she's from Moab. She's left everything behind. She's a woman without a country. She has no family. Her husband is dead. Her father-in-law is dead. She left her family behind in Moab. Now she's living with her bitter mother-in-law, She's fending for herself. No one is providing for her. She belongs to no one. She's alone. But the answer to Boaz's question is ironic. He doesn't know it yet, but Ruth belongs to him. He's going to be the one who is responsible for her well-being. He's going to be the one who is responsible to redeem the property that belongs to her in-laws. He's going to be the one to raise up an heir who will be the future and hope for Naomi and Ruth. Boaz responds to Ruth with kindness. In verse 8, he says, hey, stay in this field. 
Stay with my young women. Don't, you don't have to go anywhere else. I will make sure that you get enough food. Verse 9, the servants aren't going to harm you. And in fact, if you're thirsty, go drink from the water that the servants are drawing for themselves. Now, this is not normal treatment. Poor people gathering leftovers from the harvest wouldn't be treated this kindly. Instead of being treated like a beggar, Ruth is being treated like someone who belongs. She's given privileges by Boaz. She is protected by Boaz. And that's why in verse 10, she falls on her face in gratitude. She realizes that even if an Israelite had come, a poor Israelite, that this treatment would have been noteworthy. She's a foreigner. In fact, every time Ruth's name is mentioned practically in this chapter, she's identified as a Moabite, a Moabite, the one who came from Moab. Over and over again, we're reminded that she doesn't belong. Why, as a foreigner, is she given such favor? Boaz tells her in verse 11, it's just a small recognition. A recognition of her sacrifice, a recognition of her loyalty, a recognition of her faithfulness to Naomi. And in verse 12, Boaz blesses Ruth. He prays that the Lord would reward her work. Little does he know the kind of role he will play to fulfill his own blessing. God has a purpose for you. That's what that young man that Marvin mentioned heard from his aunt. That's what we see here in Ruth chapter 2. See, none of this that's happening in Ruth chapter 2 is chance. None of it is blind luck. God has a purpose for Naomi. God has a purpose for Ruth. God has a purpose for Boaz, and he is drawing them all together to bring about his will. God has a purpose for you. Oh, Eric, this is just what you preachers like to say. How can you be so sure that God has a purpose for me? Friends, it's the whole point of this book. Yeah, Ruth tells the story of Israel. I get that. It helps us move from the book of Joshua and Judges into the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. It takes us from the time in Israel where there was no king to the kingship of David. But it is also a demonstration to you and me of how God normally works in the lives of his people. As you read this book, there is no pillar of fire. As you read this book, there is no voice from heaven speaking audibly to the people of God. There are no angels. There are no visions in the night. Instead, it's normal men and women just like you and me. Going to their jobs, living ordinary lives, being used by God to advance His kingdom. As Christians, you and I are supposed to read the story of Ruth, and we walk away with a greater confidence in the God who is at work for us. 
Because we see how in this story, the Ruth, Ruth and Boaz give birth to Obed. Obed is the grandfather of King David. Jesus comes from David's line. And so we can see even this early in the Old Testament that God is faithful to his promises. He's not going to let his people languish. He won't relent. God won't give up. Nothing will stop him from fulfilling his purpose in the life of Naomi and Ruth. And that means that nothing will stop him from fulfilling his purpose in your life too. But Eric, my life, my life is full of hardship. My life is full of sorrow. Not only does it not seem like God is present, but what's worse is when I actually call out to God in my desperation, all I hear is my voice echoing through the void. Friends, on the darkest day of human history, when it seemed like the powers of hell had finally succeeded in putting a stop to God's plan, in halting God's purpose, even on that day, God was at work. In and through the death of Jesus Christ, God was at work securing your salvation. God was at work ensuring that you had a future, that you had a hope. God was at work providing through that great high priest an avenue back to him in praise and prayer. Friends, if God didn't spare his own son, to ensure that death and despair weren't the last words for you, then no matter what's going on in your life today, you can be confident that God is still at work for you. You can trust that He's at work in the good times and in the bad times. In the days when it's a normal day and it's just easy daily decisions that don't seem to have any bearing on anything in the world. And on those days when you have to make momentous decisions that seem to direct the course of your life from here on out. Nothing occurs by chance. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing is beyond God's power. That's the foundation of our hope. That's the foundation of our confidence today and every day. Let's pray. Father, we need Ruth. We need to be reminded of this common woman of Boaz, this common man, otherwise forgotten in the pages of history, no reason that anyone would know their names or their stories, but recorded here for us that we might be reminded and comforted that even in the normal everyday activities of our life, you are there. You are directing us. You are guiding us to fulfill your perfect will. Oh God, give us eyes to see 
And when we cannot see, give us a heart that believes and strength to trust and to step out in faith, believing that you will direct us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.